Hello, and welcome to the first edition of the Podding Shed, the official podcast of the ChelseaFCblog.com. What you will get, hopefully, as we go along with this new project, in inverted commas, um, is four Chelsea fans with decades of suffering and the occasional spot of elation under their belts, talking about the uh, issues of the week, um, the game that has just passed, um, and anything else that has come up that we deem worth talking about. Um, if you fancy making a comment on what we've uh, talked about, then go to the ChelseaFCblog.com, leave us a comment, abuse, whatever you choose to do, and we will um, maybe talk about it the next time. Um, we probably picked quite a good week to start off, because there's a, a lot to talk about. Um, Chelsea 3, Manchester United 3. Um, again, we probably would have all been happy with a point at 5-4, to four, and at 5-6 to six, we were probably all distraught that that's all we got. Um, <laughs> Plenty to talk about. Um, lots of comments on the blog about it today after Ryan's excellent review. Well done on that, Ryan. Um, Mark, what did you think? What did I think? Well, um, we had a very enjoyable ten minutes after half-time, which was quite a purple patch compared to our last four games. So that was pretty exciting. But uh, my son was sitting next to me, and I said, I feel confident at 3-0. And he said, I don't feel confident at all. I didn't really believe him, but actually when they got to 3-1, the atmosphere around me completely changed and we all knew what was going to happen. It was only a matter of time. And in the end, I think we were all grateful we didn't lose 4-3. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. Um, I think that, that's the thing that, that seems to have occurred from what I've seen on Twitter and elsewhere is that whereas um, four or five years ago, maybe at 3-0 against United, we'd have been um, lighting the cigars and, um, and cracking the champagne open, but yesterday was was very different i don't think I know, i've spoken to anyone that's actually felt confident um donor you you weren't at the game but you were obviously watching on tv so you maybe saw sort of different aspects of the game what did you think um i think i should first of all say that it's interesting that the that the first edition of the podding shed we should be discussing manure but um <laughs> watching watching it on um, on the telly the problem i always have with watching it on tv or you know, even certain types of streams, um, is, is that you just don't get a full view of the pitch. So you're no, you, you can't pick up the movement. You can't see the shape, the shape properly. But like everyone else, you know, at 3-0, I just thought if we can get to 75 minutes and they've only got, they've got 15 minutes to score three goals, which they are quite capable of doing, but we might just hang on. And of course, almost straight away, uh, they then conceded uh, a penalty, uh, and you know, you, as you say, you, you could just sense the whole atmosphere being sucked out of the ground. And because of our defensive woes this season, and I don't, by defensive woes, I don't mean the back four. I think all our defensive problems stem from the midfield organisation, the way we set up mm. in midfield. It, it never convinces me that we can close any team out, um, any team that we give the ball to and allow to run at us. Even, you know, Wigan and other teams like that, they're all capable of passing the ball and running with it these days. And our setup just never seems to, to close the space off and stop the runner. And we just don't tackle anyone anymore. And so I, I like Mark Sun was convinced that 3-0, I was happy, but I was also aware that this might be a very transient uh, experience and thus it proved saying that of course we, we had the two 
last best chances of the game and could have won it 4-3. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think it's, the thing that, that stood out for me was um, the, the lack of leadership on the pitch. Um, Tony and I actually spoke to each other at half-time and <laughs> commented on this, that the fact that there was sort of none of those those Mourinho moulded leaders that um, that we've been used to, the you know, the Drogbers, the Lampards, the Terries, um, there were very well there were none of them on the pitch, Czech and Maluda, I think were the only two Mourinho players on the pitch. Um, and they just didn't feel like there was was someone there that was barking instructions and keeping everyone in line. It was very pleasing to see Cahill doing that in his first game. He actually looked like he was trying to sort of marshal the defence a little bit and um, and bark a few instructions at people. Um, Tony, what, what do you think about that? Do you think that's what we lack now? I think, like you, I was impressed to see Cahill, arms outstretched, pulling people in, um, putting David Luiz in his place for, for what was really just his only, I thought, real error, which was a, a very dodgy clearance. Um, and and I'm after the, the sort of shenanigans over the last week, or the last few months actually, I'm not convinced that there's much in the way of, of, of captaincy anywhere really. Um, and I see in Cahill, I do see something, I think it's almost a natural thing, that almost the election of a captain is irrelevant. I, having said that, I do think we missed John Terry. I think that at the back, mm. there's a, 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 a respect for him. And how much of that has actually been um, undermined, I think, is, is, is still to be seen. Um, I was going back to some of the comments that, that have been said so far, and um, I've always had a maxim when I've been in Stanford Bridge that I will relax when we're six up. And when we beat Wigan 8-0 the other year, um, that's when I started to relax. So that's when I thought yeah, we might have won this championship. <laughs> um, and so 3 0 for me, I always remember it was, I think it was Bill Shankly who said, you know, get one, go and get two. You got two, go and get three. And when you get three, shut the shop. And um, this Chelsea side doesn't seem to have that capability. And mm. it's remarkable. I totally agree that the midfield is where the problems are. I don't think when we look at the back four, We've suffered badly with Ashley Cole. I think he's been pretty lousy for some time now. Um, but I, I'm not sure if it's mental or whether this um, constant nagging ankle injury that he's got is, is finally starting to wear him down. Uh, I thought Persingle was fabulous yesterday. I thought he had a good game. Um, better, I think, at left-back than I've seen him probably plenty well else. But bearing in mind how he played against Spurs at centre-back, I think perhaps right-back seems to be the possibly most ill-fitting position for him. Chuck him up front. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, going, going back to that, when you looked at it yesterday, the frightening bit for me, certainly in the second half, was when um, old Purple Nose decided to bring on um, you know, the old ginger veteran, um, Paul Skulls. And, I mean, he could have had a party for him and 200 of his friends in a marquee in that midfield. Mm. Such was the space he was given. And it was quite noticeable that Romeo came on. The first thing he sort of did was go to Essien and say, you know, Obvious from the the, the, the gestures, you know, push up forward. That was the order, or whatever. And I expected to see Essien basically all over skulls like a rash, and it was drifted out to the wing. And but like you said, I think you made a comment, um, John, that he he seemed to be you know basically puffing out of his kyber. I think so, coming in by about seven yes. minutes. I, I think. I mean, the, the, the thing that, that struck me, and again, a lot of people have commented on. So I'm, I'm only parroting what other people are saying, but. 
an awful lot of people said, you know, at 3-0, you think maybe get, get Romeo on because he's, you know, he's very tight, he's yeah. good in possession, he's good at closing people down. Um, and like you say, shut up shop. Um, Mark, where do, you, do you, where do you think the substitute? I think the substitutions seem to be what the bugbear of, um, of people's view on AVB are at the, at the moment, especially with regard to yesterday's game. Um what would you have done? You know, what changes would you have made? Maybe, maybe different, and and why? Um, well, I don't know if I can put that in the context of substitutions, but I mean, I think over the last few games we've effectively been playing with nine men. I mean, Maluda is absolutely shocking. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I mean, the the crowd around me were absolutely horrified with every move and manoeuvre that he made or didn't make. <laughs> I mean, I've never known I've never known a winger so keen to go backwards as opposed to forwards. Uh, so it, we were playing without him on the left wing. And to me, I know that um, other people here may not agree quite so strongly, but I thought Sturridge has been very poor recently. Yeah, I know he did I agree with that. He, he did make the first goal. So you've got to give him credit for that because it was a good run down the wing and he got the ball across and he put the defender in a very difficult position. But aside from that, um, he makes very few runs forward. He doesn't chase back. If there's a 50-50 ball, he always chickens out of it. And his performance summed it up in the second half where he had a chance on the right of the penalty box. He wouldn't pass it. He held on to it for about 15 seconds and then shot about 20 yards wide of the post. And the whole crowd groaned. Um, So I don't think he's contributing to the team. No, I think, I mean, I think actually one of the, uh, um, certainly from our our point of view, the the best moment of the game was um, was Matters. Absolutely fantastic goal, probably one of the best mm. I've seen at the bridge in a long time. Um, a fantastic finish, but the other thing that, that really stood out about it was Torres's cross, which was absolutely superb. But it, it made me sit up and think, oh, when was the last time we actually saw a decent cross coming from the right wing? Um, from either and- wing. From either wing, yeah, and that um, that kind of stood out because it, it was absolutely undefendable. It left, it, it took the entire United defence out of the game and. Um, and was only ever, the moment it, was, it left his boot, you felt it was only ever going to end up in a goal. Well, I would say, John, I think that there have been, in some of the games, similarly good crosses, but we just don't get people in the box. Mm. When they do get people in the box, you have three or four players, they all go to the same area. Yesterday, someone went near post, someone went far post, you know, and Matter got into the area and was positioned where if the ball was going to drop, as it happened, it dropped right on a sweet spot. But he was still finding space in the box so that should Mm. a decent ball come in, he could do something with it. That happens all too rarely. Yeah. You know, Bosingo does get down the wing. You know, 50% of the crosses are useless. But 50% of them are decent. They just don't look good because there's never anyone there. And, and that's part of the problem I think they've got. They, there's just no, there's no cohesion in the team. There's no reading each other. No one really knows what the other player's going to do. And for like a split second yesterday, Torres perhaps sensed that Mata was there, put the ball in there and Mata hit it, bang into the top of the net. We see far too few moments like that. Yeah, Chelsea teams this this year, you know, it's just not gelling that the little twos and threes groups around the pitch, they're just not gelling together. And and that showed yesterday. United, poor as they are compared to United teams of seasons gone by, they still hit the ball around to each other 
as though they have, you know, been to training at least once that week at some point. You know, Chelsea don't look like they've been training at all together to me. You know, that's my impression these days. Does it does feel a bit like that sometimes? I mean, I think you know some of the stats that are cropping up from the from the game is. I mean, it's the first time in Premiership history that Chelsea have conceded a three goal lead, um, which is is fairly telling. Um, moving on to sort of VS Boas, who to me is is dividing opinion like very few Chelsea managers have managed to do before. Um, we appreciate that he's obviously fairly young and relatively new to the job, um, indeed, relatively new to the job of football management, albeit you know, he had a, a, a storming career in Portugal. Um, the feeling was that you're up against a wily old campaigner like Ferguson. Um, I don't think that either of the teams are actually what they were five years ago. Um, it's just that United look a little bit more organised and had a little bit more guile and nous about them. Um, and that was what told in the end. I, I think they're just a little bit ahead in their transition. They're probably a couple of years in front of us. They, they, they've successfully blooded those twins. Um, <coughs> Johnny Evans, for whatever you, you might think of him, is a regular. They've, they're missing Darren Fletcher, who you know, two or three years ago I would have said wouldn't have been fit to grace Doncaster, let alone Manchester United. Um, and I think... I, I sort of commented, I think, on the blog today about it and said, uh, I think we're not we're not as far behind as people think. Um, no, I, I think what I think you've got a blend of experience and youth that doesn't work. And uh, I, was, we, I think I was talking to Donal last night, and you know the Maluda position, um, as dire as he has been for some time. Let's not kid ourselves that it's just this season. He was lousy last season. Well, in my view, he was anyway. Mm. Um, and Mark summed it up brilliantly with the you know the fact he wants to go backwards. He's more of the crab, um, a reverse crab than Ray Wilkins ever was, as far as I see. <laughs> that, that that was made for Josh McEachern yesterday. And I, I, I my frustration with Villas Boas is the same as it was with Ancelotti. And people will talk about AVB not making the substitutions. I thought he did something good yesterday. He took a forward off and brought a, a defensive midfielder on. So it wasn't like for like. It wasn't the Ancelotti. 65 minutes in, we're going to take a right back off and bring a right back on. Um, so I thought that was okay. But that was made for Josh McEachern yesterday. And I just get frustrated because I think, you know, Wenger, has, maybe he's had his hand forced with this Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain lad. Um, but this lad's gone out there and absolutely shown. And, and Josh McEachern's gone out every time he's played for us, he's put in a competent performance, grown in stature, and then we loan him out. And I, I just think that we're missing a trick. That's that's just my view, and I think I, I expected more from AVB. And I, having said that, I think we'll see more of that next season. When you look at that bench yesterday, um, it's all very well saying he didn't have much else to choose from, but that was quite an exciting young bench, Paolo aside. But you know, I think um, you know, I, I think there's a brighter future. And I commented quite a lot on this last year that I think you know there was we're probably paying the price for not having dismantled from the end of the double. After that double, mm. that's when we should have been making mm. the, the changes. Not quite like we did, you know, getting rid of Balak and Joe Cole and Belletti. There was uh, a far more fundamental piece that was required that we just didn't do. And we didn't bring those youngsters in. And, you know, I don't know what anybody else thinks, but 
Who remembers when Gal Kakuta had come in here 25 minutes against Wolves, I think, a couple mm. of seasons ago, lit the yeah. place up. Absolutely lit the place up. And there was a buzz there. And that was all we saw of him. Yeah. You know, and Barini, another one. Yeah, he was banging two goals yesterday, I believe, for Roma. Yeah, he's just... Against, against Ranieri, funny enough. Yeah. The big question I, I, that, that occurs to me about this is, you look at Romeo or Roma or however you wish to pronounce his name, he's 20 years old. Yes, he's big physically, so that helps to come into uh, you know, a physical league like the Premier League. He's big physically. He has all the attributes, particularly, I think, the fact that he can make horrendous mistakes, but it doesn't throw him off his game. Like yesterday, he came on and he made a couple of horrendous errors, but he still settles down and gets on with it. Um, why is he trusted? Why is he game ready when Bertrand, Bekekran and all these other characters aren't? That, that's what I'd like to know. What, what, what is it that they see down at, at Cobham about some of these players that makes them hesitate to put them in. Maybe Mikel's lack of form forced their hand with, with this young lad, but he's come in and he's not looked out of place. Yes, he makes mistakes, he's 20 years old. You know. I think you touched on it there, Donald, that you said about his physical presence. I mean, he is a bigger, uh, he's bigger built and he can take care of himself and he doesn't look out of place. So when you look mm. at Josh McCreckram, mm. he is fantastic, but he does look lightweight mm. and he does look yeah. like a boy. I would agree with that. Whereas Romeo looks like a man. Mm. And he is very, very confident and competent on the ball. And he does make the odd mistake. And he seems to be making more mistakes recently. But when he first came in, I mean, every touch was absolutely perfect. So mm. I've got great hopes for him. Yeah, I think he's trying, he's trying a bit harder now and he's, he's taking more risks. I think when he first came in, he only ever played the short, safe ball. Now he's probably trying to expand his game a bit, perhaps feeling he's got to do more, you know, under pressure. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, he's certainly a very good player. But you just wonder why are some of the other guys who are 23 not able to, to come into the team? I know his physicality helps him, but you know I'm, I'm not particularly thinking McEachern because I, I think, yes, he's got to sort of... You know, you look at Mata, Mata's a small player, but he's, he's muscled, isn't he? Um, and, and Ramirez? I mean, he's, he looks like you could pick him up and <laughs> stick him in your pocket, doesn't he? I mean, yeah. he's, he's yeah. the archetypal pipe cleaner. He looks bigger than he did last season. That's the thing. I think you know he, he took an awful lot of stick, especially on our, our blog. He took an awful lot of stick last season, and he played an awful lot more than he, I think, he would have done in um, in Lampard's absence. Mm. Um, but there were times when you, you just he was being he was being bullied out of the game, and and it was the, the speed of it was passing him by. But this season, or and in the latter part of last season, and this season, um, you know, it looks. You know, from my point of view, maybe looks like he's put on ten kilos or so. It's just physically a little bit sharper, um, and he's you know probably our best midfielder of the season so far. So I think these things can change reasonably quickly. And I, I think you know we all have to remember you know McEachern. Obviously, yeah, we, we'd love to see him. You know, even if which I would drive everyone mad, even if he went out on loan next season. He could come back, spend ten years at the heart of our midfield, and still only be thirty. You know, we've got to remember he is still very, very young. Mm. Um, so, but I think you're right. I think there is a lot, lot to look forward to. Another stat that I, I picked up on um, in the week was the, no, the, the number of players that we've got are, are either under twenty-one 
or over 30. And there's a very small number that are actually in that kind of 24 to 28 age range where players in general peak. Um, and that, to me, is, is kind of... The, the issue that's arisen from chopping and changing managers so often um, is that we've kind of stuck with the tried and tested whilst, you know, whoever has been in charge of the youth setup has been running around Europe and the rest of the globe picking up these wonderful 16-year-old prospects, mm. to point a phrase. Um, and, and then taking them all on the ferry to Hamburg with him. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, and then they're filling the Bundesliga with them. Um, but I think that's the problem we've had, is that we just don't have that, that kind of core of, sort of 24 to 28-year-olds anymore. Um, but I think, you know, the future is bright. But it would seem the way that... Um, that AVB is being viewed is that, you know, he's going to be left alone to, to kind of get on with and build his own side. I think for him, it's all, I think sometimes his manner doesn't particularly impress me and, and what we hear about the way he's, he's dealt with some of the players and, and some of the issues that have arisen maybe shows a little bit of naivety. Um, but I think he's always going to struggle to get players who are 34 years of age and at the end of their career to maybe buy into something that's going to take three years to, to put together. Um, I don't know what anyone else thinks about that, but I think he's I think he's naive in some places, but I think he's got a hell of a job on his hands and it, it's going to take him a little while to sort it out if he is the man to do it. I th- and I, I think that's valid. I think that makes him slightly more fearless. And I don't buy this poor man management one quite as bad um, I, I, I sat down and watched Sunday Supplement the other week with Dennis Wise and Gianfranco Zone on it mm. and Dennis Wise was scathing about Ranieri an experienced manager okay, yeah treated, they, were, they, were never, they were never the best of friends no they weren't they weren't <laughs> and he treated you know calling it Dennis Wise he treated him shockingly and I think you'll, you'll find that football is littered with experienced managers who just don't like certain players and treat them shoddily. And I don't think Villas Boas is any worse um, than, than that. I think the players need to stop sulking in, in, in a lot of cases. Um, I, I wish they would all act as professionally as an Elka did. Mm. Who mm. just put out yeah. a very good, he's either got a very good agent, I suspect an Elka's more intelligent than, than, than your average footballer. And he said, I appreciate that Chelsea are moving in a different direction, it's time for me to move on. And for that, he yeah. leaves with head held high, the gratitude of all the fans, um, and no hard feelings. And what we get is these inside stories. And I go back to this, you know, the guy I know who plays golf with, you know, the Zola, Di Matteo, and, uh, and this sort of stuff. And, you know, they, 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 the, the interior view is a lot of the time that, you know, journalists have got one goal in life, to sell newsprint, to sensationalise. Yeah, and... Therefore, you know, if you throw enough of the brown stuff, some of it will stick eventually, but most of it will just slide down the wall. And I really, I'm not saying that I think ABB is perfect, but I think he has a fearlessness about him. And if you looked at the reporting that was done, particularly, I think, in the Daily Mail today, and I know it's the Daily Mail, <laughs> um, and therefore, you know, probably there should be a big caveat right at the bottom of that, which is do not believe a word of this. Their chief story, I think, was something along the lines of um, AVB um, was intimidated or shocked or something um, and angry or something, the, the fact that Abramovich turned up there. Yeah, all the photographs that were printed showed them laughing and joking with each other. 
that was surely that was surely McCarthy falling out with his chairman for turning up in the in the dressing room. That's a sort of a theme now that journalists, like you say, yes. that they, there's a story to run with. But let's go around and find, you know, obviously it won't happen to Ferguson, but they'll find one or two other managers who maybe have a little bit of tension with the owner, or the owner just happens to pop into the dressing yeah. room to say hello, and they'll try and, you know, get some heat under that and bubble it up. You know, Abramovich has always visited the Chelsea dressing room, and I think any manager who comes to Chelsea who thinks he's going to stop that would have a problem. And I don't think AVB is quite that daft that he'd try and insist on on Abramovich staying away from the dressing room. Like that's that's how it's been at Chelsea. It was that, like that under Mourinho, and I can't see that being did, being an issue. You know, it's just one of those things. And a, a slight aside, did, did any of you watch Match of the Day 2 last night? No. no, no I've, I've, never watched, I've never watched a single Match of the Day after we've lost. <laughs> it's, it's unbearable I had to tell some Manchester yeah. United fans today at work that we didn't actually lose that game um, uh, I watched it and they showed funny part of the interview with AVB so I went onto the BBC website and followed the whole four, <coughs> four minutes 48 seconds or whatever because you know that absolute numpty Collymore had been commenting and a few other hacks as well um, around the fact that oh, he's a bit prickly isn't he and I listened to the interview, um, and I thought he was fantastic. He was no more chippy than Wenger, Ferguson, certainly no more as chippy as Mourinho used to be with some of them, or Mick McCarthy. And uh, I think I'm, I, I welcome that. I, I really got tired of the absolute blandness that um, we saw from Ancelotti, appreciating that English wasn't his first language, of course. But nothing, you know, the, for, to come out after the game and basically stand there for three or four minutes in front of uh, the press and say nothing, absolutely nothing, um, used to drive me mad. You know, I, I, I like the bloke, and I think, actually, it's a brave move, of course, if I think that's what we needed. God help us, if, we, if he goes, um, and if, if, if I've got it wrong, and, and Abramovich really is going to get rid of him at the end of the season, you know, there is a big Spanish tubby, waiter-like person who's, acting, <laughs> who's dressed in an elephant's outfit in the room for us. You know, mm. There ain't it, many others that would be big enough to take that job on. It would be, it would be a concern. I think um, to, to try and sort of to round off um, the, the whole United game and, and V.S. Boas, um, it, 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 for me it, it did raise a concern that, that, that we conceded a 3-0 Lead. Um, we haven't touched upon how Webb, um, and I suspect that's probably quite a good thing. Um, that it's it's certainly something that it almost felt expected, like we, like we touched upon. Um, if if we can actually get back to having a little bit more steel um, when we manage to take the lead, that would be a fantastic thing. Um, whether that's something that VS Boas is able to do, I suppose only time will tell. Um, we may be having a, a similar conversation in the in the middle of next season, and would be a little bit more concerned if we've been doing the same thing. But if if we make progress, we have to bear in mind we are still unbeaten in 2012. As, as strange as that may seem, mm-hmm. um, that this is progress of sorts up until. Yesterday, I think in, in 2012, the defence, we, we played six games and conceded two goals, which, based on what happened towards the end of last year after Arsenal, um, it was hardly something we were all confident in, was, was our back four. But um, it does seem to be improving. I agree that um, with the point that was made earlier on that 
the midfield has has an awful lot to do with that. Um, I think there are good signs. I think there are certainly things that need working upon. Um, there are personnel that are going to need changing. Um, and as a panel, as we are now, um, we keep an eye on this over the next um, weeks and months and um, we pass our opinions as, um, as, as the issues come up. At no point on Sky yesterday, strangely, when I didn't listen to all the build-up, but no one mentioned that... Uh, Chelsea should, you know, Chelsea went to great efforts to get the game on because we desperately needed to avoid the sort of fixture congestion that can't possibly trouble Manchester United this season. <laughs> they've only got one competition, yeah. you know, and they got half a dozen games between now and the end of the season. We've <laughs> got an endless, an endless grind through Europe and the latter stages of the FA Cup. You know, the treble is still on. <laughs> desperately clinging to the hope of one last Premier League title yeah, I think, that's, I think that's, that's a very good point to finish upon the treble is still on let's look optimistic about this that's one of the most refreshing things I've heard very good so we move on to um, the other big issue of the week we, picked a, we certainly picked a good week to start this little endeavour um, John Terry and the FA and issues of captaincy, racism, court cases. Um, difficult to know where to start. Um, Donald, I'll throw this one to you because you made quite a lot of interesting points on the blog last week about you know exactly what delaying the court case served. And I obviously um, we had the caveat that we're we're not going to try and. Um, do a Joey Barton and uh, breach all sorts of um, <laughs> court confidentiality and so forth. Um, yeah. what's, what's your overall take? There's an awful lot that we could probably ramble on for hours um, about. Yeah. What's your overall take on this whole issue? Um, it's, it's difficult because at the heart of it is the possibility, or in some some people see the probability that that one English player abused, racially abused another English player on English turf. I think, in although people wouldn't like to admit it, that somehow distinguishes it from the Suarez-Evra incident where we can all sit back and say, well, you know, a couple of foreign players, you know, they don't fully understand, they're culturally ill-tuned, they're probably all... Yeah, they're all foreigners, they're all racists. So, I think you know, you just, there's a slightly... I think you've just summarised um, Liverpool's defence there, actually. But <laughs> <laughs> um, <good> to continue. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think uh, that, that's why this one hits home perhaps more than most. Other than that, and, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait to find out, and this is one of the, the, the curses of this situation, is whatever was said and how it was said... Ferdinand didn't officially make a complaint after the game. The whole thing seems to have stemmed from what people believe they saw him, Terry, say on on a a TV feed. And and obviously these videos circulated on YouTube. I didn't actually look at any of them. And so the whole thing got removed one step, as far as I can see. And the FA started to investigate, and I, I can't remember now the timeline, but it was several days at least before it got closed down because a member of the public made a complaint. And as I said in that thing I wrote on the blog last week, to this day I don't know who this member of the public is. And I thought, no. I thought legally 
uh, if someone makes a complaint to the police, okay, the CPS have decided to take on the prosecution, but surely it should be public knowledge who that person is and what it is that they complained about. But, you know, maybe that's not what happens in these cases, I thought. I thought that that was sort of fairly standard legal procedure, unless you're dealing with some sort of criminal gang or someone who can threaten your life. Maybe it's the defence that Chelsea fandom would descend upon them or something. I don't know. Mm. That struck me as very strange. But it's hard not to get... It's hard to to keep in mind that there is quite a serious issue at the back of all this, which is, Mm. is someone racially abusing another player on the pitch? If they did that... Why is the referee and those players around them so con- unconcerned by what they're hearing in that there didn't seem to be any particular reaction to what he said? So if that is an everyday occurrence on the pitch, that's a problem. If John Terry was ever thought to be someone inclined to come out with that sort of language on the football pitch, why is he the captain of Chelsea? Why is he playing for England? You know, there's all these sorts of issues bundled up in it, but it's all being... It's all sort of wrapped up in a general dislike of John Terry. Someone I don't know, I possibly wouldn't like the man if I did know him. But, you know, in the, in the treatment of his Victoria Parenchel case, as against the treatment of Ryan Giggs, you can see that he's not a popular figure for a lot of people. Mm. And, and that's, that is perhaps driving some of this. And it, it's, you know, when some of the... Uh, people like Jason Roberts and so on tweet about these things, you wonder, are these people just pushing their own personal agendas or is there some problem in the dressing rooms around the Premier League? It's all very murky and it needs opening up and looking into if there is a problem there and if John Terry's part of it, that will come out. But it's all being shut down now to beyond the European thing, which strikes me as not helping anyone and particularly not helping John Terry. And I, I think his, uh, he was ill-advised to do so. Well, one mm. final thing that came out yesterday, I, I was sort of feeling that, that the FA probably were caught between a rock and a hard place until Danny Mills, I think, on Radio 5 Live, he made the point, which didn't go down too well with a lot of the people in mm. the studio because it, it went ran against the way they were trying to push the story. But he made the point, bearing in mind he's an ex-Leeds player and two Leeds players suffered particularly, i.e. Woodgate and Bowyer. He made the point that the rule used to be if you were charged with a criminal offence until that was sorted out, be you innocent or guilty, you didn't play for England. And then the Stephen Gerrard case came up mm. and they didn't want to be without Gerrard, so they changed the rule. So my sympathy for the FA has gone out the window because they've been hoist by their own petard. Yeah, they, I think they had a, a perfectly they've certainly rule. made a roll for their own back, haven't they? You know, if John Terry understood the rule, there was nowhere for him to go other than once the criminal proceeding started, he stands down. And he stands down whether he's innocent or guilty, and that's the way it's done. Now you've got this whole morass of a, a situation which is, you know, frankly unhelpful. It's creating all sorts of other tensions. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very unpleasant. And if at the end of it he's guilty, well, there's a big problem there for Chelsea because, you know, they'll be on the spot then as to what they do with John Terry. Mm. Um, if he's innocent... 
you know, I won't be watching the Tour de France because the backpedalling that's going to be going on will be far <laughs> more entertaining. You know, but, you know, it's... it's I'm, I'm sitting on... The, I've got an arse full of splinters because, you know, I don't know John Terry. I don't know what he's inclined to do. Mm. You know, if, if Anton Ferdinand had come out after the game and made, you know, the accusation in the way that Everett did, you'd have something to... You know, he's undoubtedly upset about something, but, you know, it's very mm. difficult to see what is going on, you know. I think that's the thing, I, and I, I think you make a very good point. Um, for me, Terry's reputation always seems to precede him. He's, he, he's admired as a footballer, but I don't think he's terribly well admired as a person throughout the game. Mm. Um, that, again, is just it's, it's my opinion from what I've, what I've seen. Um, I think he's been fortunate so far in his career that his indiscretions have been off the pitch. They've all been off the, you know, whether it's it's it's, it's brawling outside a nightclub or affairs with teammates, ex-girlfriends, or whatever it happens to be. It's always been off the pitch. This is, like you say, the, the big issue about this is, it, is it's two English players um, on an English playing field, uh, and it's it's a serious accusation. There's absolutely no question about it. Um, Mark, I mean, I think we've. We've we've all been watching the game for long enough to to remember the time where where racism was a much bigger issue than it is now, and I think an awful lot of good work has been done. Um, the suggestion that's been made this week is is that you know it simply hasn't gone away. Um, I don't particularly agree with that. I think it's always going to be there. Um, what, what's your What's your take on it? You know, you've been watching the game for a long time, and I'm sure you've you know you remember like the rest of us where. Black players took an awful lot of abuse and grief on the pitch for the colour of their skin. Um, it's changed an awful lot since then, but what do you think of this? Well, I mean, it has changed a lot since then. I mean, I remember when I first, um, when I was at primary school in the early 60s, uh, there was one black person in the school. Mm. And it was a shock to everyone, because we'd never seen a black person before. Yeah. And... Now, you know, if you look at inner city schools in London, um, there's more black Asian kids than um, white kids. And that's the change in culture in London and in England. But there are people with sort of longer memories, like, I don't know, John Terry and John Terry's family, and they will have certain opinions and certain ways of saying things, and it's going to take decades for that to be eradicated. Mm. Now, I don't know what John Terry said. I don't know how he thinks. I don't know whether John Terry is a racist or not a racist. But I think that, you know, things happen in sport very, very quickly. People hit each other. They get on with it. They say a few expletives. And I think all of those things should really be just taken care of on the pitch and in the dressing room. And it's going to be years, decades, until we have players who don't say abusive things to each other and come out with witticisms that were make Stephen Fry feel jealous. <laughs> but, you know, up until that point, we, we can't have Stephen Fry playing at centre-back because, you know, he won't keep it very tight at the back. So, you know. I've seen the Twitter feed tonight and I think I know what you're referring to. <laughs> um, I, think, I mean, I think that, that's, a, that's a very good point. Um, the, the point that's been made to me by, by someone who, who kind of deals with cases like this is, is that... Actually, they've come across players who have been charged with, with saying things and, and have sat 
very contrite and very sorry and in, in a lot of cases very tearful say that I really I am not what I'm being accused of I was simply I was trying to wind the guy up I wanted to get him sent off we've been pissing each other off all game there'd been lots of needle and I just said what I said um it doesn't it certainly doesn't excuse it and I'm, I'm not saying that for a moment but I think you're absolutely right that what happens on a football pitch is maybe a very different kept the fish to what happens in society albeit that Unfortunately, the way football is is regarded at the moment, you know, players are, are looked on as role models. I personally wouldn't ever want a child of mine to look on a footballer as a role model, but people do. Um, Tony, you know, you've you've obviously brought children up. I don't suspect you you, um, you, you wanted them to look to um, you know the footballers of the day as um, as role models. What's um, what's your take on the whole affair? Um, I, I you're right. I. You know, I'm their role model, and I, I should be, um, and so should their mum. And I, I wouldn't even want them having any kind of celebrity role model. I had heroes when I was a kid, mm. their role models. Um, well, I don't think George Best is what you could call a role model. Peter Osgood, um, you know, they were all known drinkers and womanizers, and uh, and you know that <laughs> that may well have been quite acceptable. It's not a bad life, I, I, I must admit. Um, I personally think the whole thing is it's out of hand and and um no knowing donald is a, a very keen um fan of, of um railways um i think a return to steam at the moment would be a fantastic because the way the press are stoking this up you know who needs hs2 just put them in the back <laughs> of a steam plane, we will be we will be breaking all sorts of you know speed records because these people are it's 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 what I call airline crash syndrome. Um, you know, an airliner crashes, and for weeks afterwards, every single little event to do anything <coughs> to do with an aircraft is reported. Mm. And I'm disappointed. Yeah, I think that's right. Some very seriously good journalists, and I, I put Oliver Holt up there, and his comments on Twitter and his article in Today's Mirror was outrageous to say that the fans booing Rio Ferdinand was racist. I was booing him because he's a complete and utter arsehole who I've detested for years. Okay, um, I'd like you know, I just it's nothing to do with his race, um, and had none of this happened, I would have still booed him and Rooney. And when you see the abuse our players get, um, you know, Ashley Cole has lived with, when he's got an England shirt on, and you think this is it's just out of hand. And I think the whole racism thing and the fact that they're Someone alluded to Jason Roberts and, and potential other agendas here. When they point the finger at people and say racist, when someone has slipped up, and I've made faux pas, not the racial kind, but you know, you, you, you everyone drops their drops one, puts their foot in it at some time or another. And I just, we we all say things we wish we could withdraw yes, after the fact. Absolutely, and in the heat of the moment as well, and. I just think that we should be slightly slightly more understanding. I think with all of this, it's actually turning good people back to what it's all, it's retrogade. People are now, people I know are saying, do you know what? I'm wondering why I shouldn't be racist because they're they're, they're almost pointing every sort of white person saying something about you inherently is is wrong, that you're, you're racist. And I've long held the view that I won't apologise to any black person because of slavery. I wasn't there. It had nothing to do with me. 
And I just think that this whole thing is, is it's being stoked up and, and the press are playing a big part in this. Yeah, um, I think you're right. I, that's, that's very true. Um, <laughs> just interestingly, what's cropped up on the screen in front of me is that Luis Suarez has come on for Liverpool and has been booked within five minutes. So <laughs> 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 maybe, maybe drawing a slightly sort of... Um, Tenuous line under the, um, the the John Terry issue, which I'm sure we could probably discuss I think, all night. Yes, I just quickly mm. wanted to say one more thing, and I think if, if to go back to that point about stoking up, you, it, it, there's a bandwagon effect here as well. Uh, JD, there really is. They are now turning their guns on Capello for voicing an honest opinion, and it is. Um, I listened to the, the conversation on Five Live, Nicky Campbell, one of those I was working from home last week, and uh, Trisha. Piazza Rellini, I think her name is, Terence the Cat on Twitter, um, was on there. And she basically summed it up and said, there's just a mob mentality going on now, mm. where it's, if you don't think like me, you're wrong. And therefore, if you mm. proffer an honest opinion, and, you know, I've no doubt people would listen to this and say, well, there's a bunch of racists, because we haven't stood there and said, well, John Terry, sack him. You know, I mean, it's just... You know, just go and have a look at the BBC website. Gordon Taylor, David Davis, uh, sorry, they're all coming out of the world work saying how terrible and disappointing it is that Capello had the temerity to actually state an honest opinion and uh, going based along the innocent till proven guilty line, towing the, the very line that Donald said about, you know, the, the FA hoisted on their own petard or whatever because they were so desperate to have Gerard involved. Um, and and it's it, it's out of hand. I, I I honestly don't know where it's going to stop, except that it's one of the things right now that's taking the fun out of football for me and a lot of people. Mm. Mm. But I, I think that the other thing that has to be said is that you know I know from from travelling with with Chelsea over the years, and even just very recently, and I, I'm sure it's the same for a lot of other clubs. There has been and still is an element of people there whose whose views, frankly, <laughs> quite yes. you know, still somewhere in the dark ages, you know, and and I'm sure that for young black players coming into the game, even still, um, you know, football in this country is still very much, um, you know, accepting that the majority of the population is of a sort of white European. You know, but going into football, there, I'm, I'm sure there, there are still probably occasions where um, someone's background and, and race is sometimes an issue. And I, I you know, I, I think possibly that people like Jason Roberts and others who have spent their lives as professional footballers probably feel that the reaction of perhaps people like ourselves who are saying, well, let's find out what John Terry said. Did he really say it? You know, in, in, in a long football career, can this really be the first time he said these sort of things on the pitch? If it is, then that seems rather curious. If it isn't, then why has he had a long career at the mm. top of football without anyone mm. ever saying anything? You know, I, I'm uneasy that, that not Rio Ferdinand so much because he's sort of rent a quote, but there are, you know, we're not hearing from a lot of other <coughs> black players, you know, some black players have come out and said, you know, they they, they like John Terry or they don't they don't have a problem with him. So there's something else bound up in this, I think, you know, um, and it can't be fully 
explored and I think needs to be explored. I don't mean, you know, a royal commission or an FA inquiry. I think people just have to start talking openly if, you know, what they feel are still problems. You know, you, you look around and other than the guy who's Mick McCarthy's assistant, you don't see a lot of black players getting up to coaching and so on. Now, that may be because they've come into the game at a time where they're earning quite a lot of money and when they stop playing, they want to go off and do other things. <clears throat> it may be that it's the next generation that's going to want to do coaching. I don't know, but, you know, I, I, I'm uneasy about the whole thing. There's something here that we don't know about, obviously, because this case is being closed down. And mm. to that effect, I think it's irresponsible of people like the BBC to start interviewing people like Rio Ferdinand and others in a manner that encourages them to say things which lead everyone to believe that this is an open and shut and a done deal. You know, and there's a, there's a sort of trial going on in the background before the trial has happened. And mm. That is is dangerous. Um, you only have to look at the guy who uh, down in Bristol, who basically hundred years ago he'd have been swinging from a tree, and it turns out it wasn't him at all. It was the vet upstairs or whatever. I was reading tonight about that guy who tweeted. You know, people say, "Well, the CPS have taken this on. There must be plenty of evidence." The CPS prosecuted a guy for tweeting about blowing up Robin Hood Airport in a joke. Mm -hmm. they've, they've taken him all the way, and, they, you, you know, he's now got a criminal record. Judges have sat there. Everyone has agreed, even the CPS, that he had no intention. There was no malicious intent. And yet they've managed to dig up some clause somewhere in, a, in, in a, an act that was never meant to apply to social media. Him. So, <clears throat> yeah. so the assumption that he's up in court doesn't make him guilty by a long chalk. Mm. I think that's a good point, and uh, <coughs> I think maybe it's, it's a good point to, to round this one off. It, it, it's, it's to suggest that you know everyone throwing a microphone under everyone and every man and his dog's nose and asking for an opinion probably isn't helping things, albeit that in the days of 24-hour um, news media, it's going to happen. I think it's, it's, this one will run and run, and um, I suspect that it's probably opened a, a very large can of worms that isn't going away anytime soon. Um, it would be interesting to know what, if anyone actually listens to this, what, um, what anyone else thinks. We'd like to... Um, see people leaving comments on the blog about it. Um, we'll move on to our final topic, um, which we hope will be a regular one if we can keep it running for long enough. Um, it's called Do You Remember? Um, this is where a bunch of old gentlemen will reminisce, basically, I think. Um, it's, it's a race, best it's a race between us and dementia, really. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> which takes place first. Um, Mark, you, uh, you made the, um, the suggestion for this week. Do you want to tell us what it is and, um, and kick us off with your thoughts? Indeed, I do. Actually, just before I do, I've just been looking on the BBC Sports page. Right. And I noticed that Harry Redknapp missed his flight. He did. From um, London City Airport, because it was cancelled. After we've had this podcast, does one of us want to go down to City Airport and just tell him it is cancelled, because he's not able to read the information screen <laughs> to find out the status of the flight? Yeah. Do you think he had some help? Well, uh, I hope so. When I heard that, I thought there must be a joke in there about taxiing or something like right. that. You know. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, anyway, my um, remember when is, um, do you remember when we had low expectations and how easy it was to support Chelsea? I yes. 
Do you want me to give you a bit more depth on that? Yeah, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, in, I, was, I started watching Chelsea in the early 60s. And to be honest, if we got to a quarter-final of the FA Cup, I was excited. Mm. Because that was about the pinnacle of most seasons' achievement. Our achievements got better, obviously, during the late 80s and beyond. And now our expectations are that, you know, if we don't win the Premier League, if we don't win a cup, if we're not in the semi-finals of the Champions League, we're all disappointed. Mm. So life is so much easier when you've got low expectations because just a small run in the FA Cup or just beating a big team, just beating Liverpool at home in the 70s was enough to get us all excited for the whole season. Mm. And um, therefore, are we enjoying football anymore just because we're doing better? I it's, it's it's a very good point. And, and the analogy of... of well, the, the point you make about enjoying, you know, a simple cup run um, has, has now kind of gone because, you know, if, like you say, if we don't make, you know, semi-final or final of the FA Cup, then it, it's deemed as failure. Um, I had a, a conversation with um, with a friend the other day and, um, and he made the point that, you, you know, look, maybe we are really sort of um, putting our expectations a little bit too high in the sense that for every Liverpool... Manchester United, you know, a team that dominates for 10 years and, and sets themselves up to be, you know, one of the dominant forces in football over a, a long period of time. There is a Nottingham Forest or a Leeds United or an Everton who have a, a brief period in the sun where they, you know, for five years they are the team to beat, they win things and then they just sort of slip back a little bit and, you know, hopefully stay established. Um it's going to be interesting to see what happens to us over the next two or three years. Are we going to be able to get back to the stage where having, you know, dismantled a very, very powerful, impressive team that was capable of winning things almost at the drop of the hat, um, whether we're going to be able to get that back, you know, are we going to become, um, you know, another, just another sort of top six side? I suspect Roman won't be terribly happy and will probably sack many managers in this pursuit of, um, of getting back up there. Um, but yeah, you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think it was an awful lot easier when we weren't um, we weren't quite so expectant and uh, and quite so demanding. Um, Donald and Tony, I know you know, you're both of the old school and um, probably appreciate entirely what Mark is saying. Um, absolutely, and um, and I think it was it was a lot easier then. I think the highs are higher now. I do because mm. the achievement is so much greater, and I think that you you get. Um, a juxtaposition in the sense that it is that much lower when you give away a three-goal lead against one of your biggest rivals. <laughs> I think it, we undersell the fact that we had a fantastic team. I think our, you know, as big an achievement as winning the Premiership under Jose was two years on the trot, um, the bigger achievement was breaking that duopoly um, of Arsenal and United because that was heading towards one place and that was the Celtic Rangers. Yeah. Um, you know, complete boredom and mind-numbing, repetitive dullness of Scottish football. And I think uh, w- w- by doing that, but I go back to times, you know, during the 80s, we had some pretty rough times. And, and one, sh- you know, well, I think my worst, most shuddering memory was the playoffs against Middlesbrough, um, mm-hmm. where we were relegated, um, <clears throat> you know, a pretty ropey team. I think even the following year, we uh, we... There was a, a year when we escaped dropping down to the old third division. Um, I think by a point that may have been in Jeff Hurst's reign. I can't remember now 
the specifics of it. But there was something about going to the, the shed or, you know, going in, paying fiver, going in, being generally leery um, and enjoying it no matter what. Uh, you know, if you went there, you got a bit of a thumping from somebody. It was like, well, let's go and have a beer. And um, there's the weight of expectation. I think when you get to that size of club, and it, I think it's possibly just an immaturity on our part because we've not been in those um, higher echelons in that sense for that long. And I think if you talk to United fans, it's water for ducks back for them. Um, you know, they get the disappointment, but they, they, they've got such a recent history of success. Um, mm. And in Liverpool, to a degree, they're so blinded by their former success, they ultimately believe they're going to get back there. And I think for us, we're still a little bit shell-shocked by it and thinking, you know, I still shudder when I see a Chelsea player pass the ball out from the back instead of lumping it down the field <laughs> as far as possible, as quickly as possible. And, you know, it, it has changed, but I think also, you, someone said earlier on, I think both Mark and Donald said that um, you heard, you could feel the atmosphere drain from the ground when United got their goal back. And part of that, I think, is we've got far more cosmopolitan support now in the ground. You know, there's far more, um, you know, it's, it's a reflection of London, perfect reflection of London in the sort of multicultural, the different languages around the place. And with that comes a little bit of the fair weather support, you know, that these people, um, and you've probably all spoken to one or several at some point or other, that unless we go and cane somebody 6-0, it's some sort of tragic failure on our part, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition. Having, having, you know, I started supporting them in 1970 with the Bonetti, Osgood um, era, you know, the Leeds... Um, oh, glory, you're a glory hunter. Was, it wasn't <laughs> I just, you know. Um, you know, but that, you know, playing on the um, the horse of the year pitch at Wembley Stadium, etc. And, and they were fantastic days. You did always long for that success, and it was always a bit of a mystery to me as a child why why weren't why hadn't Chelsea won the, the league championship? And, and, and honestly, what marks it? Do you know, for me, at that age, nine years old, the most important thing was the cup, not the league. Mm. The cup, that's where the glory was. You know, mm. the whole day in front of the television, the cup final was such an occasion. And, you know, I, 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 I'm quite romantic in that sense. And I, I kind of miss that now. I kind of miss the fact that the Premiership has, and the Champions League have, have undermined domestic competitions to a degree. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so fond memories. But uh, I think nowadays, would I, would I want to go back to where we were? Not really. I think I, I think that's a good point, actually, in the sense that I don't think anyone is saying, you know, we should we should accept sort of slipping backwards and um, and maybe not being quite as successful as we are, but possibly that it might actually be inevitable, and um, we're we're going to have a harder time dealing with it, um, having um, tasted success. But um, Donnelly, I guess, like I said, you've you've seen the good, the bad, and um, the probably very ugly as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I started, apparently, according to my mother, who's not to be believed, should you ever meet her, I, I did support <laughs> Southampton when I was very small. But my first real memory is, is 1967, the Cups final, because I grew up in Tottenham. And uh, right. everyone I knew, uh, every shop you went into, my school, bus drivers, everyone were all wrapped in Tottenham scarves and God knows what. And I not travelling outside my square mile, I uh, I believed that there was no one in the world supporting Chelsea. And so, being the sort of chap I am, I, I took it on my shoulders that someone had to 
had to get behind them. And uh, to this day, I'll never forget standing outside what was the Prince of Wales Hospital, looking across at Tottenham Town Hall as Tottenham paraded the cup, tugging on my dad's sleeve and asking him whether Chelsea were having a parade as well. (laughs) 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 I think I was about eight at the time. It just seemed inconceivable to me that, you know... That's, Chelsea, that's magnificent, you know. though, because that, that was our celebration. We got to the final. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, obviously, then you had 1970. So my early supporting years were, were coloured by that, that sort of fashionable King's Road, you know, the Osgood Hollins and all that sort of stuff. So, mm. you know, the 80s. And I must confess, obviously, that when I went to after I went to college, after I left college, um, I really did cycle racing for a good seven or eight years so I spent a lot of time training and racing and, and saw very little live football I mean I was mm. followed it on the TV and I think um, once I packed that in I remember watching the Sunderland was it semi-final where we lost up there 91 under Porterfield 1991 um, and that was like heartbreaking because that was the first time they'd got anywhere near anything for a good while and then I started going regularly and got my season ticket and I seem to remember a game where Sheffield Wednesday equalised in the last minute and I left so hurriedly that my now wife then girlfriend was left to pick up all the sandwiches and bags and things that I'd left <laughs> under my seat because I just stormed out you know and, and yesterday reminded me of when Leicester came back and was it three all under Martin O'Neill in a league game, Viali? We were yeah, sort of knocking about. It was, two all. It was yeah. two all, and had, had we held on to the? Uh, I remember because this is burnt on my memory. Had we held on to that two 0 lead, we actually were in with something yeah. like a shot at the title. I can't remember the details, but it's one of the reasons I, I don't dislike Martin O'Neill as a man, but I hate the sight of him dancing on the touchline because it's all I can remember about that game, and I wanted to shoot him. Yes. <laughs> and, then, and then the Arsenal, you know, with. Uh, Carnu, oh. you know, if I met him on the high street, I'd probably wet myself with fear just to see <laughs> it, you know, because of what he did. So there's been all those sort of painful things, and everyone who knows me says that I'm a lot more relaxed, although they wouldn't have thought that yesterday as I was screaming at the, at the screen, but I'm more relaxed, and I, I think that was the double winning. It wasn't the winning the league the first time with Mourinho or the second time, it was winning the double. There was something... Because of yeah. where I come from, you know, I grew up with Tottenham having won the double in 61. I went to school in Islington um, at the time that Arsenal won the double, 1971, was it? Um, so I've had London teams and their doubles sort of hammered into me. Burnt upon your memory. And so for us to win the double, I know it wasn't our greatest team. I know we sort of half our stumble there in some ways, but... I, I can sort of cope with what's going on now because we 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 did it. We've we done it. Double, mm. You know, and if we have to retire, you know, into the gloaming for a while, then so be it. You know, at Man United, everyone judges everything by Man United. That, that is an astonishing record they've had under Alex Ferguson, and you know, I think you could live for a hundred years and not see the same thing happen anywhere else again. You know, I, I, is, I think you're absolutely right there. Actually. Everything is judged by that. And you'll drive yourself mad if you if you judge everything by that. I think the the other factor, just to, to wrap up because I'm rambling on, is that back in 1970 or 83, you you opened your newspaper, you read, you know, and relived the pain, 
you put it away, you might get some ribbing with mates down the pub, and that was it. Now, every game, every minute of every game is torn apart and dissected and shoved back at you, and everyone knows everything because they've watched it, they've read it. You know, you say, well, we we won 3-1, and someone will point out the 53 penalties that the other team should have had and, you know, how you all surround the referee and how you... You can't win a game anymore. You know, it's just not possible. And so I think that that perhaps more than the winning and the success takes some of the enjoyment that, you know, I think Mark is getting at, takes some of it out of it in that you're constantly having to defend yourself against mm. this, you know, great big charge sheet that everyone sort of rolls out as soon as you sort of appear somewhere, you know, and they're, they're opposing fans. But, you know, games like yesterday... You know, that's why we watch it, painful as it was, you know. And that goal for matter, you know, worth the yes. money on its own. So, Absolutely. Gentlemen, I think that's probably a good time to call it a night. Um, I'd like to thank you all for uh, for taking part in this um, this new endeavour, and we hope that um, we can do it again sometime soon. Um, by way of seamless link, I'll actually introduce us all at the end because I forgot to do it at the beginning. <laughs> Terribly professional that it is. Uh, I am Johnny, otherwise known as Deck Kaiser on the blog. Um, I've been joined by um, Doctor Blue Bayou, otherwise known as Donald, uh, Mark Twenty Five, who is otherwise cleverly known as Mark, and Chelsea Tony, who is Tony. I hope you all enjoyed it. Don't I post as grosser chat these days? Do you? I, I, you may well. The do. man of many parts. <laughs> keep, keep moving, keep changing your name, that way they can't find you. It's, it's, an, it's an anonymity thing, yes, that's right. Yeah. If, um, if you're listening to this and you like what you heard, leave us a comment on the blog, www.chelseafcblog.com. Make a few suggestions about what you like, what you didn't like, what you might like us to talk about in the future. And hopefully we will join you again sometime. And until then, good night and goodbye. Good night. Good night. Goodbye.